Hello, you are so welcome to the Black and Irish podcast. I'm Leon Diop. I'm Femi Bancole. I'm Amanda Ade. And I'm Bonnie O'Demino. Over the last few weeks, we've had some really interesting conversations with some amazing people. We've talked to politicians, policymakers, musicians, parents, teachers, poets, radio presenters, and lecturers. And to recap on some of the topics, we've discussed things like culture, schools, identity, workplaces, raising children, even though none of us have any children, racism, the arts, and much more. We've had some really cool conversations and we've spoken about the future a lot. It's clear that if we all work together, the future will be really, really good for Ireland. But for this episode, we want to leave you with something really special. To know where you're going, you need to know where you've been. So we're going to take a walk through time to discuss Black and Irish history. We want to share some cool stories with you about some characters in Irish history you may never have heard about. So sit back, relax, and get ready to hear some fascinating stories. First up on this episode, I'm going to be speaking about Tom Molyneux. Tom Molyneux is a fascinating character. He was born into slavery in the United States in 1784 on a plantation in Virginia. His father was allegedly a boxer and learned to fight in the Revolutionary War while he was fighting with the British. After the war, he came back to the plantation and taught his son how to box. So because he was so good at fighting, the slave owner, Algernon Molyneux, used to make wagers with other slave owners in the area on other plantations that his fighter, Tom Molyneux, could beat any other slave in the area. One night he got so drunk that he wagered the entire plantation that Tom Molyneux could beat another slave owner's fighter. He asked Tom Molyneux, would you fight for me, please? Would you like go in and beat this fella? I'm after getting really drunk and I'm after betting the whole plantation. If you win this fight, I'll give you your freedom and I'll give you $500 as well. So Tom Molyneux agreed. Ultimately, he beat the fighter and he won his freedom. Tom Molyneux won his freedom through fighting. After this, he decided he wanted to box more. He went to New York and boxed as many people as he could in New York, ultimately beating whoever came in front of him. He was told that the world heavyweight champion was in England, so he decided to go there. He got on a ship with no friends, no family, and went over to the UK to London in order to pursue his dream of becoming a world heavyweight champion. So accounts of Tom Molyneux when he got to England was that he was very brash. He had a very big physique. He used to walk the streets with his top off. His power and style earned him a title shot against the then world heavyweight champion, Tom Cribb. Allegedly, he won that fight, but was cheated against on a number of occasions in that fight. He would eventually lose the fight after 39 rounds of boxing. In the 39th round, the ring was stormed by people watching the fight, audience members, and his hand was broken. The fight records are so gruesome that the crowd could not distinguish which fighter was who. After he lost his fight, he decided to travel to Ireland, and in 1815, he moved to Galway. He fought there for three years and often set up matches in Air Square. Tom spent the last few years of his life teaching children how to box, mainly in Mayo and Connemara. Ultimately, the sports star passed away with nothing to his name at the young age of 34. In Galway City, August 4th, 1818, 
Molyneux died and was placed in an unmarked grave. In 2019, Ireland's own world champion boxer Katie Taylor unveiled a headstone honouring fellow champ Molyneux in St. James's Cemetery, Merview, just outside Galway City. It's a fascinating story and it just goes to show that people, even back then, of African origin were making names for themselves in sports. Folks, tell us, what do you think about that? Bonnie, what, what's your thoughts on that? Just the way Tom himself first got into the sport and how randomly at that time in the world that he was able to bring that talent of his over to Ireland. But I know, as you said there, he passed away with, with nothing to his name, but he did leave a large legacy, especially in the West Coast of Ireland. So when I first heard about this story of Tom, I could not believe that this happened and never even learned about it in school. Also, I just think it's it's really um it's it's really important for us also to recognise truly the real challenges he had even moving from America to Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it was it's recorded that when he wanted to fight the the Irish champion, the Dublin champion, he said himself that, that the champion said that he'll never fight an enslave uh, an enslaved man or a black man. So even with that, he still decided to stay in Ireland and continue to contribute to Irish society and to the community he mm. was around. So hats goes off to Tom Molyneux, to be honest. Like. It's really interesting, you know, when you really dive into these figures in Irish history as a whole. I don't even want to just pin it down to black Irish history. And like you mentioned, Bonnie, I think it would be great if we hear a lot more about people like this in the curriculum in schools while we're growing up I think it's great representation to have for the black Irish community I think it just shows that you know like black black Irish people have been here for a long time and have been doing a lot of really great things I just thought it was really interesting the different challenges that Tom went through in his life from you know the impressive or maybe tragic in a way method of how he fought his way out of slavery literally speaking then all the way to kind of like finishing off and living a humbling life in Connemara where he, where he taught kids. When Leon was just telling the story there and I was like, oh my God, this guy has, has had such an eventful life. And now he's like, oh yeah, he's going to, you know, die at like, you know, age 50, 60. But I was just shocked and taken aback at, mm-hmm. you know, how, how young he was, you know, w- when he passed away, but still how impactful and powerful his story and inspiring in some sense his story was for someone who who lived such a short life but like one thing that i think of when i think of tom on you it's just a sense of pride and thinking that there was you know a, a black boxer in ireland doing so well at the time and being you know really adored by the people of ireland and even now getting katie taylor to unveil a headstone it's just something to remember him by and it, it's ireland recognizing the legacy it fills me with the same pride as, you know, when I'm seeing the likes of Tommy McCarthy in boxing or Nelvin or Rasidat or Nadia Power in athletics or, you know, Linda Dugang and Ni Adiolekin in, in rugby or Lara Dehunsi or Boydi Useya in GAA. You know, it's just mm-hmm. the list goes on goes and on, on. Yeah. of the incredible, incredible achievements. They're doing amazing things and they're giving young black and Irish people figures to look up to. They can have pride in. So, it's just amazing that that comparison with people in history and, and people who are doing their bit now, it's, it's, it's just fantastic. So look, yeah, that's the fascinating story of Tom Molyneux.
So the person I'm going to talk about is Raphael Armato, or Dr. Raphael Armato. He's known as the Irishman from West Africa. He was Ghanaian doctor, author, poet, and politician. And he was nominated for not one, but two Nobel Peace Prizes during his lifetime. So he was born in 1913 to a prominent family in, you know, back then it was known as Togoland, which is the modern day Togo and partially Ghana. He received a basic education locally, and then he emigrated to Europe to continue his studies. Given a bit of context around the time when he emigrated to Europe, that was around the time of the Second World War. So challenging times in Europe, to say the least. He studied anthropology, literature and medicine in Nazi Germany, did a bit of study in France. He qualified to be a medical doctor in Edinburgh, and that's where he met his wife before they both moved to Derry, Northern Ireland. He settled very, very well into the community, so much so that he was appointed the Civil Defence First Aid Post in Brook Park in Derry, where he worked from 1939 to 1945. He would provide medical services and first aid to anyone who required medical assistance as a result of the war. After the war, Dr. Armato, he had a medical practice at his home in Seven Northland Road, and he increasingly devoted his time to writing and public speaking on various topics, mostly anthropology. His work and research around the Bochy drug led to him being nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in physiology or medicine in 1948. In 1947, he attended the Nobel Peace ceremonies with his friend, Erwin Schrodinger, who, if anyone is a physics fanatic like myself, <laughs> he's, he's quite a famous physicist. So it, it just shows, you know, the kind of people that Dr. Raphael Armato was kind of rubbing shoulders with while residing in Ireland. In 1948, he, he returned to West Africa when he continued to do some more research around um, physical anthropology and he received a second nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize, again in medicine and physiology, for his work there. For me, it was just interesting how this young African man who was residing in Northern Ireland in the mid-1900s completed such amazing work that led to him being nominated for not one but two Nobel Prizes. By the end of 1950, Dr. Armato and his family had mostly left Derry for Kumasi, which is back in Ghana. There he set up a medical clinic and again continued on his endeavors in poetry and politics. He'd written a couple of books, which are still central pillars to students of African literature till this day. He traveled to New York in 1953, which is coming towards the end of his life. He was by 40 years old at this point, where he addressed the United Nations on questions around the unification of Togoland. On his way back to Africa, he actually stopped by in Ireland where he visited his daughter who was en enrolled in a school in Dublin. He took a stop from Ireland to Germany. He unfortunately ended up dying prematurely in a hospital in Hamburg where he died on the 21st of December in 1953. A blue plaque has been put up in his honour outside his residence in 7 Norton Road in Derry. This is where he lived between 1939 and 1945. It is used to commemorate his contributions to Derry in a very much trying time. So that there's the story of Dr. Raphael Armato. What do you guys think? I think it's a deadly story. I mean, it just goes to show how well 
you know, people were received within the community and how fast people could settle within the community in Northern Ireland. It's just so heartwarming to to read stories like that of people coming from really far away places and just being welcomed with open arms. You know, Ireland is the nation of 100,000 welcomes. I really feel like Dr. Armato got that type of, of welcome, you know? I just think it's really interesting to see how, even back then, um, just how recognized he was within society. Although I know you kind of mentioned it there, Leon. You know, his work kind of landed him in the space of being nominated for two Nobel Peace Prizes. Like, that's insane. That's crazy. And the fact that that was able to be done by somebody that is connected to this land. I just think it's just a really, really cool and rich history that, again, we don't really get to hear much about. Seeing the similarities there with a lot of, you know, highly skilled people coming, immigrating into Ireland from and many parts of the world from Africa, you know, the likes of our parents' generation and stuff like that. There are a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of mirror images and mirror experiences there. Even though that that's part of our history, a lot of it is, you know, repeating itself. And we're still seeing that and seeing how he was able to come into Ireland and flourish and really contribute, not just to the country, but it's like to, to, to the progression of medicine, you know, as, as a whole. And um, that's such a great thing. And I think that's really a lesson that we can take in here in terms of, providing a space, providing a country where people's gifts and talents and what they have to offer can really be utilised and used to make Ireland flourish and make a name for it for Ireland, I think, around the world. And I think we're starting to see that a lot more now. So I think it's it's great. Honestly, when I first came across the story, I don't know how I came across it originally before we had shared it on our page last summer, but I couldn't believe this because, guys, let's, 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 let's just take a moment to understand this. There was a black man who's living in Ireland not too long ago that was nominated for Nobel Prizes. Like, that's ridiculous. And the work he had done was from, was based here on this island. Like, it's stories like this, and it's going to be a recurring message from me throughout this this episode. But this, these are these are the type of stories that ought to be told within our schools that that all of us, no matter what our skin color is, should know as long as we have a connection to this land. If, if you look at it at the time period in which he, he was alive, he lived in the UK and he lived in France, which are both nations at that time who, which I, I would guess, might I guess to say, had significantly more black people in the in those areas compared to the north of ireland at that time uh, and and in the context of you know if you look at the rhetoric nowadays about immigration etc the fact that first of all like dr amarato was able to find solace and home in ireland in comparison to other countries that may have had more people who looked like him and yet also still continue to contribute so well to that society as an african immigrant in ireland is just amazing itself and I, I, I would, I would love one day to meet his grandkid, his great grandkids, or the fa- his family that's still about. It'd be amazing. that brings us nicely on to our next story so amanda who are you going to be chatting about today i am going to be chatting about one of my favorite um figures in irish history actually or even just history as, as a whole rachel baptiste she actually goes by um 
a number of different names. She was also Rachel Baptiste. Some history books have her name as Raquel Baptiste. She was born in Ireland in the 18th century. She was a black Irish singer. And it's just crazy because when you think of Ireland in 18th, in the 18th century, you wouldn't think that there would be, you know, black people born in Ireland. But, you know, like we've kind of been going through in our in our history months and history weeks and some figures even from this episode, we're kind of uncovering that, yes, there was a black population in Ireland. And although nothing significant is really known much about her early life, and what we do know is that she was part of an estimated 1,000 to 3,000 black people living in Ireland in the country at the time. There was, you know, a bit of a community there, probably kind of scattered around or kind of concentrated in major cities and, and towns and stuff. But yes, back to Rachel. Her first appearance was on stage in Dublin in February 1750. And this is a, at a benefit concert for Bernardo Palma, who was actually her singing teacher. He was a man of Italian heritage living in Ireland as well at the time. On this debut, she was actually described as an Irish native. So even, you know, got, dating back to the 18th century, that sense of blackness and Irishness being synonymous or being able to be hand in hand was actually, it was still there. That sentiment was still there. So she was described as an Irish native at the time and she enjoyed a successful career performing in English and Irish theatre. So she did spend quite some time over in the UK, even from 1757 to 1767. So over 10 years span, Baptiste herself stated that she was in England performing in London and Bath and so many other places. However, there's not really much of a mention of her in playbills in like the London stage at the time. There is cause to believe that Baptiste actually played Polly Peachum in The Beggar's Opera. And then later she played Juliet in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet in Lancashire during the time. So as much as she was a singer, she was also a bit of an actress and she did theatre there as well. She later performed in Liverpool in April 1767. But at this stage, she was now performing under the name of Mrs. Crow. So it's kind of assumed that in the winter previous to that, she got married to a certain Mr. Crow. And, you know, yeah, her appearing under this married name. Not much, again, is known about her husband, Mr. Crow. But what we do know is that he was a musician. He taught violin and guitar. But he also worked as a restorer of oil paintings. So he's quite artistic himself. So they made quite the quite the little duo there and then in the years that followed that the couple they settled down in a number of Irish towns they were always moving around and traveling around and performing together they would advertise concerts and balls under the title of Mrs. Crow and musical tuition by her husband that was kind of their little traveling band you could say but they settled in a number of Irish towns they like Brandon and Cork Limerick so many others and one performance she did even inspired a gentleman from Kilkenny to write a poem in her honour. And this poem was actually published in Finn's Leinster Journal in December of 1767. She had quite the fan base, you can imagine, in, in Ireland, around Ireland at the time. By now, she was seen as like a major Irish celebrity and continued to perform in many concerts and balls all around the Isle of Ireland. But our last record of her performances is actually... Uh, from her Belfast concerts in winter of 1772. After this point, then there's actually no record of her or her husband after 1773. So the exact date and location of her death is unknown. And whether or not they had any children is also unknown. Um, I think the great thing about this story is just, I think Rachel Baptiste as, as a whole is just an example of how a gifted and an enterprising black woman in 18th century Ireland 
could you know move beyond what we assume to have been the limitations on careers and opportunities of not just women at the time but being a black woman I think added a whole extra layer to that so in my opinion anyway she's an Irish hero but I'm interested to see what you guys think what really gets me about this story is you know this is in the 1700s and you know as we know that wasn't an easy time to be you know a person of color so what really impresses me and kind of shocks me about Raquel Baptiste was how her talent just transcended the times it doesn't matter didn't matter what the color of her skin was if anything I would just have loved to just hear what her voice sounds like what her music sounds like mm-hmm. just to you know get a measure of of, of her yeah. talent do you know yeah there's a couple of pieces that I found really interesting from from what you said um the first being that records at the time showed that there was only about a thousand black people in Ireland at the time and now when you look yeah. today there's nearly 70,000 yeah. like it's, it's just it's it's fascinating how the community has has grown and um you know has, has developed o- over the years I love that piece around you, you know how like I, I don't think anything can keep a black woman down mm-hmm. do you know what I mean um and if you have that talent and those aspirations you can go anywhere and we're I, th- I think we're seeing plenty of that today um in, in, the, in the talents that we have growing up you know in, in Ireland at the moment yeah for sure you just need to look at people like Denise Chayla look at the likes of Soleil and um, Alicia Ray like there's so many to to name there's so many to choose from um but I think that legacy and that same kind of spirit that drove Rachel Baptiste you can see it reflected in the community today the story of Rachel or Raquel um, was one of the first kind of black Irish history pieces, stories I came across myself. And it blew my mind that this was taking place in 1700s Ireland, you know. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she wasn't just like a national treasure, a national celebrity. I, I think I remember reading that she, her status within Irish um, Irish life it was so high that she was literally considered a national celebrity at the same level of other, as other big Irish artists and singers, etc. But the fact that she was so big here on the Isle of Ireland and she was, and the England itself yeah. is absolutely crazy, crazy. And considering that she wasn't just a black person, but she was a black woman mm-hmm. succeeding like this, it just blows my mind. And she definitely is a source of inspiration for all of us, yeah. without a doubt. There's a lot of mystery around the story of Raquel Baptiste. Like, the, like we don't know too much about her, her, her marital life, about her, her spouse, and we also don't know too much about her early life. So we do know that, like, like um, Amanda said, like we do know she was born in Ireland, but how a woman of African descent ended, like herself, ended up in Ireland, it's still a mystery. And I think I read that historian, some historians suspect that, uh, that. Her parents were, her mother was was a slave living in Ireland at that time, um, because this was at that time. So there's still a lot of question marks as to like how her family or her end up on the Isle of Ireland, but her legacy in itself is, is just next to none. Definitely agreed. So that is the story of Rachel or Raquel Baptiste. <laughs> over to you for our next history icon right yo all right guys so i have a really really good one here for you all and um 
I've been I've been itching to get going on this one for 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 a week or so now. But this is the story I have of Tony Small. Basically, Tony Small, um, his story and his link to Ireland begins on the eighth of September, seventeen eighty-one, during the Battle of Utah Spring, during the American Revolution. During this battle, there was a Kildare native named Lord Edward Fitzgerald, who, who found himself badly wounded on the field. So whilst he was unconscious, there was a slave by the name of Tony Small who found Mr. Fitzgerald covered in blood. Tony saw him, he decided to carry him up and bring him over to a cabin where Tony cleaned him down and dressed his wounds. Basically, Tony saved his life. During this time, Tony had explained to Edward Fitzgerald that he had escaped from his owners as a slave and he had fled to Carolina before the war itself began. After hearing this story, this led Edward Fitzgerald to literally offering Tony a way back to Ireland and where he could just work for him as, as a paid servant. Tony took up this offer itself. During this time in Dublin, Tony lived, lived with Lord Edward in Leinster House, which is currently Dáil Éireann. When I first heard that, I was like, hold on, you're telling me in the Dáil there was a black man, a black man representing Ireland living there back then. Crazy stuff. While living there, Tony ended up marrying an Irish woman named Julie, who he had worked with. During this time, Tony and Edward became very close with several examples of the friendship being documented. Some of this came through letters between the two of them when Edward Fitzgerald paid for Tony to learn barbering in London. And this or Edward Fitzgerald had commissioned um, of Tony by an artist named Thomas Roberts. In 1798, Tony Small fought as part of the United Irishmen against the British alongside Fitzgerald, Wolftown and Robert Emmett. When laughed at about their foreign member, it is said that the United Irishmen expressed that Ireland would be a free land for all and Tony is a free man in what will be a free nation. Tony later moved to London with his wife and children after Fitzgerald's death, still keeping in touch with Edward's family. The last known contact Tony had with any friends in Dublin were letters explaining his illness in 1803. Edward Fitzgerald's wife was documented to have financially supported Tony's family shortly after his passing. Friends and scholars in Dublin very much expressed that they believed that Tony had actually died of a broken heart after finding out of the death of his good friend, Lord Edward Fitzgerald. Overall, like Tony Small is one example of, um, of a black person in 1700s, 1800s Ireland, who contributed greatly to Irish society and most notably fighting for Irish independence, which in itself is just an amazing thing to hear how someone who through one good deed found someone injured, helped him out later, was able to move back to Ireland and then pay this person back by fighting for Irish independence. It's absolutely an amazing story itself, but... Leon, tell me, what do you think when you heard the story of Tony Small? I absolutely love that story. And I think it's it's just epitomizes just how when, when when people, whether they're born in Ireland or whether they move to Ireland, Ireland just finds a place in your heart. You'll just never forget it. Like Ireland is such a, just an incredible country. And I don't know whether it's the landscape or the people or, or whatever it is or combination of the two, but Ireland just takes up a special place in everyone's heart that is here, no matter the circumstances that you, you come here or, or are born here. And I think that's exemplified through Tony Small when he's talking about, like, I'm going to fight and die for Ireland if I need to, and it will be free. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I feel like it's just such an amazing story. 
Yeah, do you know what I really took from this story, right? Do you know that feeling uh, when you're growing up and you're kind of like struggling with your identity a bit and you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a foreign national, you know, I'm not really Irish. What if black people, you know, black people were never in Ireland? What have black people ever done for Ireland? And this story just always gives me great comfort to know that as such a critical and important part of Irish history, you know, I remember learning about Robert Emish back in secondary school, maybe primary school as well. Um, and, and just knowing that there was, you know, a black man involved in that, involved in the very, you know, important part of Irish history kind of just, you know, comforts me a little bit. It, you know, it makes, it makes me feel a, even that extra bit more Irish, knowing that, you know, someone like this contributed massively to, to our history, you know? Yeah, no, the part of the story I think that really kind of stuck out to me was, you know, when, when they were kind of trying to laugh at Tony's involvement in the whole movement and everything, how the others were the ones to stand up and back him in that and, and, and keep him protected. I think that was, for me, was like the most powerful part of the story. And what was the quote? It said, was Ireland will be a free land for all and Tony is a free man in what will be a free nation. Just to me, that just speaks volumes. That's it. It shows at the core that that's what it boils down to when you think of Ireland. I know Leon just touched off it there. But when you think of Ireland, when you think of the land of, you know, 100,000 welcomes, Cade Mila Falta, that's it. That's the essence of it at, at the very, very core. And I think just keeping that in mind um just keeping like the humanity of it, even at the start when Tony was dressing his wounds and stuff like that, you know, just seeing an example, seeing such a great example of true friendship and what it means to be human, to care about people and love your neighbor. You know, someone like Tony Smalls, who was willing to die for this land all the way back then, I personally believe because he was willing to die for the people who cared and looked after him so much and made him feel so welcome. And it's kind of like, it really is the cornerstone of that kind of love your neighbour principle, despite whatever differences you have, you know, even if our backgrounds are different. But if we're on the same team and we love this land in which we both be living in, then we got each other's back, no matter where our communities were from. The story of Tony Smalls is one that we all ought to be proud and all ought to be <laughs> told and taught about in schools because... Imagine if the story of Tony is taught in secondary skills and primary skills. Mm-hmm. Imagine the story if the stories of Ra- 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 Raquel Baptiste or or um, Tom Molyneux or Dr. Amarato was taught. How much more would this help in dispelling misconceptions of other people from different backgrounds? Or how much more work this will do in bringing communities and bringing people together? Because we can look at each other and say, heck, our people, whether that be Irish people, black people, white people, we've been working together for centuries on this island to make it a better place. So mm-hmm. bloody hell, this is amazing. So look, that brings us to the end of our fascinating stories. It was an absolute honor to be able to talk to you about these stories and tell you about these fascinating characters. Really hope that you've enjoyed hearing about these stories. And if you want to hear more, you can check them out at black underscore and Irish on Instagram or on Facebook. If you go back to our page, you'll see all of these stories and the sources that they come from. So that's all, folks. That brings us to the end of the series for the Black and Irish podcast, season two. Thank you so much 
for tuning in. It's been an absolute pleasure to record this series with three of my best friends. I think it's been an absolutely fantastic season. Just the different dynamics that we explored in this season has just, I felt, hopefully given everyone more of an insight of what it's like growing up in Ireland for a person of colour and maybe what it's like growing up in an African home. First season was kind of, you know, people kind of got to peer in through the windows into what it's like, you know, being African and Irish or Black and Irish, mixed race and Irish, whatever it may be. But this season, I think, you know, the doors were really open and we kind of got to invite people into our homes. Kind of got to go a bit deeper, a bit more under the surface and really delve into some meaty topics. This whole season's been absolutely amazing. Never forget everyone, like, what we're always trying to do with this podcast and, and with these episodes and stories is to show everyone, no matter what our skin colors are, as long as we love the island that we're on, that we're here to work together as one country moving forward. So this is exciting and we're excited to see how bright this future on this island is going to be for all of us. Keep an eye out. We'll be there.